Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Welcome to Hillsdale College's Classical Education Podcast, bringing you insight into classical education and its unique emphasis on human virtue and moral character, responsible citizenship, content-rich curricula, and teacher-led classrooms. And now your host, Scott Bertram. Thanks for listening. We're joined today by Adam Keir, teacher at Veritas Preparatory Academy in Phoenix, Arizona. As part of our Leading Figures in Education series, we'll talk Maria Montessori. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Before we get started on Maria Montessori, please tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Veritas Preparatory Academy, where you work. Sure. Uh, well, I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with a degree in classical languages and philosophy. And uh, after a short stint in teaching in Pittsburgh, I came out here to teach at Veritas Preparatory Academy, which is a great heart school. They're a network of classical schools in Phoenix, Arizona, that are also now in Texas. And uh, we pride ourselves on our humane letters curriculum, which I also teach, uh, which is modern European history and literature and lots of other humane letters topics. And, uh, yeah, we really believe in uh, an Adlerian model here at uh, Great Arts. So it's great. Lots of classical education. <laughs> um, what more can I say? Yes. We talk with Adam as part of our Leading Figures in Education podcast series on Maria Montessori. Tell us, uh, who is Maria Montessori and, and, and a little bit about you know her background and, and, and her time? Uh, she was born in the late 1800s. I mean, she was born, I, it's kind of funny, the same year that uh, Italy was unified. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a neat little think about her. And um, she was the first woman physician uh, graduating from the University of Rome, where she later taught. Uh, she had to do a lot of research in the evenings, in school in the evenings, and classes with men and boys throughout her life. Um, so she was kind of a, a pioneer in a lot of ways. And uh, then she was given a, a task to study children in, <laughs> in a kind of institution, children that... Um, were either mentally handicapped or who were deemed uneducable for some reason. And, uh, yeah, her uh, interest in education took off from there. So, How would you describe the state of the educational world around Montessori when 
she wrote and, and thought on the subject of education. Yeah, so in the late 1800s, uh, there was this kind of traditional model, I guess you could call it, um, and then there were these new uh, methods that are always kind of, you know, burgeoning out uh, to influence that traditional model. And so the the Catholic Church kind of dominated education in Italy at the time that Montessori lived, and it was understood that uh, the child really needed a top-down instruction, very much that the teacher, the parents, the community knew exactly what to give the child, and then they would just uh, force the child into the shape that was desired by the society. So her, yeah, that's that's where she's at in the late 1800s, is that traditional model where um, the children would learn a lot through you know, prefabricated textbooks, a lot like catechisms, you know, this question and answer format where the teacher could play the role of the questioner and the student would have a memorized response. There's a lot of memorization and then uh, regurgitation of what was memorized. Yeah, so um, information, right, was seen as the main substance of education uh, for her, and she wanted to reform that to say, well, the methods themselves uh, can teach. Right, and so more, uh, I don't know, as well as the content, or even maybe more so than the content, that how something is taught will influence the child's uh, desire to learn and how well the child will come to know uh, whatever content is being taught. Is there anyone in particular who uh, might have influenced Montessori in her thinking? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> she was so well-versed in the history and philosophy of education i it's just great to read her she you'll think she's only has a few influences but then she just name drops throughout her books all these things she's been reading um i mean like the the big ones that she mentions in one of her early books the montessori method which was later republished as the discovery of the child and uh, with a few additions but in in substance the same but uh Sagan was a French educator. Uh, he, she read a lot about him and Froebel and um, these uh, these men uh, were influenced by Rousseau, mm-hmm. I suppose you could say. Um, but none of them, they all disagree. There's not a uh, they're not they're not really part of the same school. You couldn't call them, you know, uh, of one mind sure. in any way. But she was certainly influenced by them. And, and what they brought to the table was this desire to study children and education that it education is was not just a uh, a deed to be done for these men and for Montessori but it was something that you should really look into and study carefully before doing and that there was some preliminary research required and that uh, over the centuries that uh, that knowledge and research had been forgotten and too much had just been assumed as uh, a standard law that may have been misassumed, I think they would say, uh, these men and Montessori together. Uh, I mean, she's also influenced by Amos Comenius, who is a kind of Renaissance Baroque educationalist. He's great. He wrote <laughs> one of the early children's books. He was fully illustrated uh, mm-hmm. to teach them Latin. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Aristotle. I mean, she's, yeah, very Aristotelian and Thomistic talking with Adam Keir about Maria Montessori on our Leading Figures in Education series on the Hillsdale College Classical Education podcast. Uh, you discussed this a little bit. But how did Montessori 
respond to the context around her uh, and education at the time and what kind of specific ideas this this could go for a while I guess what kind of specific ideas did she have to reform education oh sure why well, yeah I'm, yeah right there's a there's a great deal here like you were <laughs> saying um, well I would say first and foremost is she's not a reactionary I mean that would be the the first thing I'd want to take away and I think she wants her readers to take that away from her. Uh, she has a line in one of her books where, and she's very biblically re- literate, and um, I, I mean, you can't flip to a page of her works without um, her quoting the Bible to try and uh, shed light on her ideas. And at one passage, she's um, referencing Christ's parable of the wheat and the tares, where they're both sown in the field, and the, uh, they're growing up together, this, this weed with this good plant. And um, the harvesters desire to pull up the weeds, and then the master, uh, you know, in the place of God, says, no, don't do that. Let them grow together, cultivate the wheat. And she insists that that's the way to do it, that you need to cultivate the good that you see, and um, you, you need to be careful about pulling up the weeds, because pulling up those weeds often will kill the good seeds that's uh, trying to grow at the same time. And that's how she acts in uh, that environment that she uh, comes about in the late 1800s, that she's not trying to oppose a movement, and she's not a reactionary, but she's really seeing something for herself that she wants to share with others, a positive good, and that she thinks just looking at this good will be sufficient for people to see what she's saying. Uh, And that good, uh, very specifically, is the uh, observing children that she, um, in her youth, she was not a very uh, devout Christian. She was kind of a spiritualist of mm-hmm. sorts. And um, through this assignment that she had, um, working with children uh, and studying them and just observing them, she had a conversion to Christ and Christianity. And it just, it moved her. And, um, yeah, she opened her first uh, school, the Casa dei Bambini, on uh, epiphany that, you know, 12, 12 days after Christmas. Mm-hmm. And she thought that's so perfect. It's this holiday for children. And, uh, there, she used this uh, very elaborate metaphor in her book, The Discovery of the Child, to explain why it was so fitting. Uh, yeah. And so she thought this observing children was the key. And if you can uh, observe them in the sense of, um, like observing a holiday. So she's a scientist. She believes in observation, the facts right in front of you. But she doesn't believe in observing facts like she's superior to them. She doesn't believe that, um, like maybe a modern, some modern astronomers, not all, I don't want to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, (laughs) but they kind of tend to look down on the stars through their telescope. They're despising them and looking down on them and uh, thinking that they're superior to the work they're studying. And she firmly did not believe that that she believed that she was studying how children work and operate, and that in some sense they're superior to her. And she has all these biblical lines about the kingdom of God becoming like a child to enter it, and um, that how children are so beloved of uh, Christ. And, I mean, she found this in her observations, confirmed, confirming the truth of the gospel. So I... I, it's a very moving uh, passages in her books, especially that Montessori method and the discovery of the child. 
So what did what did Maria Montessori believe was the purpose of an education? Well, throughout her books, her ideas are always developing. Um, from her her first insights uh, at that conversion moment, observing children to the end of her life, it's continuous growth. And um, so there's not one solid opinion that she just maintains and then holds forever. But she returns to a few ideas. Uh, one is uh, independence and liberty, that she really believes that one of the goals of education is to free the child from uh, being, being a slave to those around them. That the goal is to make free men and free women and that you, to do that, you need to teach the child how to do uh, you know, daily activities as well as uh, intellectual activities. And that, that will help give the child the necessary strength and interior, she calls it valorization, to, uh, to be a free citizen. So that's really important to her is creating free men and free women. And that means strong men and strong women, uh, starting from earliest childhood. I mean, her education starts with children as young as two. Hmm. So she was a... She has a long vision there for how education should work. Um, another, another goal of hers is peace. That she wants, um, she does, uh, yeah, the, peace in that sense of a lack of war. Yes, but she, she thinks more that if you create strong individuals and they're free to act, they will also know how to survey the landscape around them, mm-hmm. and rather than. Uh, creating a conflict of wills and striving after, uh, you know, uh, some ob- object that they desire and entering into a conflict, uh, that they'll, they'll see what is the best way to attain the goal while not uh, causing damage to themselves and to others. And that if you can educate children to look at the world and other people uh, in, in this way, right, that they're all strong individuals, you're a strong individual, that you can find a way to... Uh, negotiate your path through the world without uh, relying on kind of force to, you know, make your way, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, she believes in a kind of cooperation with uh, nature and with uh, your fellow men. So that's, that's her idea of peace, is this cooperation with uh, the natural world and with other human beings rather than uh, antagonism. So those would be her goals, I guess. She has others as well, but mm-hmm. two big ones. You, you've talked about her idea on the observation of children as part of education. Would you describe that as, as being uh, her belief as to the best means of attaining those purposes you, you outlined, and, and how was that received at the time? Well, I mean, she, she believes that the teacher and other adults need to observe children carefully to not only to see what they do, but to see what need they have at that moment. And she has, a, she has a, a, an idea that any help given that is not needed is really a hindrance. So that if your child is capable of doing something and you do it for them, you're, you're kind of training the child not to do it, right? You're kind of training them in inactivity. And so what she wanted was to create active um, boys and girls, but who use their activity uh, directed towards a purpose. So not just frenetic activity that would you know that's breaking apart with um, all this tension that's bottled up or something, but directed towards a goal. So a teleological 
kind of activity. There's, there's always this end in sight. And the end is supplied by nature, right, this thing that all human beings have in common, right, our common nature. Uh, but it's also supplied by society and the teacher, that the teacher, being an adult, knows the trajectory the child should take, a healthy human development, you know, growth in virtue and then skills and in knowledge. And so uh, the teacher is supposed to carefully observe the child to see what help they need and where the teacher should sit back and let the child wrestle with it and figure it out. Now, I think Montessori education is often faulted for being something like unschooling, where it's just, you know, throw the children in the room and let them run wild and somehow knowledge will <laughs> result. Um, but she is, she's not really a fan of that. Yeah. Uh, she believes that uh, you need to give children goals that they can work towards, right? They need to teach them that there's always this direction to activity, that activity should not simply be based on whims or, you know, whatever fancy hits your mind, but it, it has a direction. And so she believes that by creating a certain kind of environment in the school or a certain kind of materials or books that children could use, and even the teacher, uh, through the teacher's direct instruction to the children, that this will help guide them uh, towards these goals, this liberty and peace, that the teacher can always help guide them along this line. Where do we see Montessori's ideas at play in American education today? I realize there's an obvious answer here, which is we, we see schools with her name on them in many cities across the country. So there's right. that. Uh, what else would you say? Well, I mean, well, I, I want to start with those Montessori schools for just one second to say that uh, schools called Montessori are not necessarily following her ideas to a T. Mm -hmm. uh, her name uh, there was a court case in America. There was a dispute between her son, Mario, and uh, another woman uh, whose name I can't remember about using the name Montessori for the schools. Mm -hmm. And it was determined in American courts that yeah, her name is not uh, held by Mario and his association, but anybody can open up a Montessori school who uh, is inspired by the method. So that Montessori schools have a more or less close association with her ideas. Um, and she herself was also very careful to say that her method, quote, unquote, uh, should not be considered a method, that it's, it's really a, a philosophy for looking at how education should be run and that the teacher needs to be ready to say, I was wrong. Um, so that kind of scientific spirit is behind her there. So, yeah, her schools can influence it. And then I mean, some obvious areas uh, that even in public schools and in private schools, any child-sized furniture you see, that's her. She's the one that's behind um, <laughs> creating little hooks that are low on the wall yeah. and little plates and little cups. And um, if you've seen a stacker toy, right, <laughs> where you stack things in order, that's her. She's uh, behind stackers and lots of little puzzles and uh, anything about matching colors. I mean, she... A lot of the childhood educational materials that you see in every school today are come from her and from her her associates developing these toys um, that would help a child self-correct in various skills and content areas. So I would, that's probably the single biggest one that anybody uh, who's been around children can see. What? What books or works is Montessori best known for if someone would want to learn a bit more, or are there good 
summaries of her thought, perhaps even written by someone else that you would recommend? Yeah, so uh, that's a tough one. The, hmm. Well, with the summaries of her thought by others, they are very hit or miss. Um, there's a lot of good ones, and you'll get some insight, but often the summaries of her thought uh, written by others are someone summarizing how they would educate a child inspired by Montessori. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, it's very um, cafeteria style, electing which parts of her work to, to put out there and which ones not, because they want you to you know, teach their way. Right. Um, a good summary that I found, though, strangely enough, just uh, maybe a year or so ago, was it's on Biola, um, the Bible Institute uh, of Los Angeles, their website. They have a, a series of uh, I don't know, articles on important educators, and they have one on Montessori, and I went through that a year ago, and it, it, was, it was quite good. It was very honest appraisal of her work, um, very fair, and they try to give you a, a summary of her life and her ideas. So, and yeah, I would recommend that. Her own works, yeah, her own works, ooh, there's so many. I mean, The Absorbent Mind is a, a title that uh, is very popular, and mm-hmm. in it she goes through children as she observed them from the earliest ages, and she goes through what she calls sensitive periods. And so at different ages, um, the child is able to learn something new like language or um, very small, fine motor movements and things like that. And she mapped all this out, the, how children develop. And she worked closely with Piaget, um, and a scientist and observer of children himself. And they observed these different stages in what children are ready for at different ages. So uh, the absorbent mind does that. Um, and if you want a, an overview of from her own mouth of her f- whole philosophy of education, there's a lecture you could find. It's called The Four Planes of Education. Mm-hmm. And in that lecture, she lays out her, her philosophy for each age, for um, the kind of preschool years, as it were, before six or seven, then the elementary school years, what the ch- child should be growing in there, then the adolescent high school years, and then the post-adolescent years, what how children should be developing. And it's a, it's a nice lecture that gives you a broad overview of her philosophy of the entire education system. I would be amiss if I didn't give one more sure. uh, book I've mentioned pretty frequently throughout this podcast, The Discovery of the Child. Mm-hmm. And that was one of her early works. It was uh, first titled The Montessori Method, then she published an edited version called The Discovery of the Child. And she goes through and she shows you the development of her thought as she's observing children, gives you some key insights into her ideas. I mean, one key idea that I I can't believe I didn't talk about is she has this idea that um, modern schools uh, redefine Aristotle's definition of happiness. Aristotle says happiness is activity in accord with virtue. And it's that's happiness, activity in accord with virtue. She says modern schools have redefined it to be inactivity in accord with virtue. That if you can just sit down and shut up and, you know, look straight ahead, be silent, and nod your head and just take in whatever the teacher tells you, that that's virtue. And she says, no, not so. Um, Aristotle was right. It's activity. And so you need to train the children in the right use of their, you know, powers 
uh, make them really virtuous, good citizens. Adam Keir, a teacher at Veritas Preparatory Academy in Phoenix, Arizona, talking about Maria Montessori today on our Leading Figures in Education series here on the Hillsdale Classical Education Podcast. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, of course. Thank you. I'm Scott Bertram. We invite you to like us on Facebook. Search for Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education. You also can follow us on Instagram at Hillsdale underscore K-12. Hillsdale underscore K-12 on Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Hillsdale College Classical Education Podcast.